Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay. Um... Today is Thursday night, and I just finished a CM. And I think, since I took the trouble to write something up, write over the CM, I think I'll share it with you on Xubis in case anybody's interested. Has to do to a certain degree with contemporary politics uh, because I'm finishing Xubis. And since I did a week or two ago, think about the Shalish and that's all the bit, got it to at the end of Xubis. So I wrote a piece up on that. And so you'll, <clears throat> here we go. This is in my mother's memory. Her yard says actually tomorrow night. I thought it was two days in Thomas, but it's three days in Thomas. Same day as Lobaba Church, Rebbe. So this Shabbos. We did to see him tonight. Tomorrow, I hope, as I said before, I expect to be in Lakewood. It won't work out. Oh, so here we go. I'm reading what I wrote. Since I'm finishing Subas, which I haven't done in many years, my attention was drawn to the extent of Agatha at the end, particularly the controversy around the Sholosh or the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of the state of Israel. The controversy revolves around the three times in Shir Hashirb, when you have the Pasuk three times, Hishpati Eschem Benos Yerushalayim, Bitzvahos Abaylos Asodim To'iru, Vim To'iru Eshoavad Shetech Pots, which I translate as, uh, Daughters of Jerusalem, I have charged you by oath, Bitzvahos Abaylos Asodim, by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Uh, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Don't push things before it's ready. Without repeating the complicated back and forth in the Gemara, it boils down to the Shalosh was the three O's. Number one, Acha Shlo Yalu Bechoma, or Kichoma, depending. They shouldn't come together in a great wall, and they shouldn't come, meaning a mass. Invasion of Israel, they shouldn't rebel against the Gaim and the Gaulas. And the third oath was to the Gaim. That God made the Gaim swear that they won't torture the Jews too much. They won't enslave the Jews more than necessary. By the time you have back and forth in the Gemara, and I believe many of you have learned this. Uh, by the time the dialogue and the Agadita is over, there's another three Shavuos in there because of the double Oshan of Yimtair Vintaru. And therefore, you have a total of six Shavuos. The other three are Shlo Yigalu Esakates, Shlo Yirachaku, or maybe Yidachaku Esakates, but Shlo Yigalu Asod Lumasolam. One more thing there is a consequence for violating these those, Umbra Blazer, Armelam Akadish Barkhli if you stick by the Shavua, you keep your part. Then I'll make you like the, the deer and the gazelles, which are helpless. People hunt them and kill them. So you'll end up being massacred. As I said, there's a famous disagreement in the last 100 years, 150 years, whatever, less, over the nature and validity of this Agatha 
as far as the theological legitimacy or illegitimacy of the state of Israel. In other words, totally separate from the problem that, let's say, the Zionists and the founders of the Medina were not from, which is a problem that could be fixed because they could become from, or the people in Israel today possibly could become from. Separate from that problem is the theological problem, according to this view, that God does not want the Jewish people to set up a state under any circumstances, even if all the Jews would be very firm. The etzem making of a state, according to this, indeed the etzem phenomenon of a mass immigration, that's kechoma, is theologically wrong and a big sin, according to this. It will only change when God decides to send the Mashiach and not before. This is the thesis, as is well known, of the Satmarov in his famous Maimar al-Ashalash Shavuos, on this. Indeed, since the founding of Zionism, according to him, since the founding of Zionism was followed by the Holocaust, because Herzl was like 1890s, and 40 years later is Hitler, it is evident, he tines, that the Shoah was a kim of the threat mentioned in the Gemara of Elezer. I'll I'll be mocked to your blood, you'll get killed. This is the Satmar theology. One of the key issues in modern times, that's the only time it's been New Gea, this is Gemara, and it matters too. And down the centuries, you have different Mepharshan who commented, explicated this Medrash, you know, hundreds of years ago. But in that time, it never occurred to them, this little mice to take a question, until the 20th century, until the rise of modern Zionist movement, when the Hava mean that this would actually be pulled off they get a, a Jewish state in some form or another, short of a total nace. So, one of the key issues in modern times revolves around the surely unforeseen unique feature of the 20th century. And the unique feature of the 20th century is Uma Sa'olam came together. First, he had the League of Nations and the United Nations. I'm not finished. <laughs> and the League of Nations in 1920 and the United Nations in 1947 said that they're Moscow to a Jewish state in Israel and Palestine. Okay? There never had been in history a League of Nations which all the Umas Olam joined. And obviously, there never was that both should vote to set up in 1920 a national home for the Jewish people because they implemented the language they included in the League of Nations the language of the Balfour Declaration. And in 1947, they actually, as we all know, voted for partition, which means in part of Israel to be a Jewish state. Okay? Now, the language of the oath was, They shouldn't be married, they shouldn't rebel against the Goyim. This sounds like the problem is Merida, going against the Goyim. But if the Goyim agreed, then there's no Merida. This is the other side of the argument. Okay? This was said by the Orsameach, after the San Remo, Treaty of 1920, when they confirmed that part of the Middle Eastern settlement of the uh, Versailles Treaties. And he said, I'm, I'm reading from the Orsameach's proclamation, Ko'es, Heiseba Ashkocha, now divine president, presence is so mandated, Asher Basifas Hamamlochas Norris for San Remo, and they're gathering all the enlightened nations in San Remo. It's called the League of Nations. Nitin Sabasheretz Yisrael Tileam Yisrael. It was given a tzav, a command that Israel should be given for the Jewish people. Now this is to tell you the truth in oversimplification. 
But nevertheless, the British weren't Mekayimit, but it said that uh, the world is, is giving Palestine to the British as a mandate, sort of like a for a while, for the purpose of implementing the Balfour Declaration. So, therefore, he says, So since there has now been removed the Pachad HaShavuos, any fear of violating the Shalosh Shavuos, and you have Rishon HaMalochim, permission of the kings and the rulers of the world, then we pop up once again with the Mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael. No, the problem was the three Shavuos. The problem was the guy wouldn't agree. Now the guy never agreed. Now, I'm saying who's right and who's wrong, but I'm simply pointing out that clearly, Tosameach is saying that if you have the Umas Olam say it's okay, then it's okay. It's not called Merida. <clears throat> now, the Orsameach wrote this as a proclamation, not as a tshuva, without a discussion of the whole issue of the Shal Shavuos. I mean, he doesn't go into the Gemara back and forth. The Avne Nazar, who lived a little bit earlier, Avne Nazar died around 1900 in Tzachat has an extensive tshuva, a long one. I have it right here. Uh, on this whole matter of this Agarita, as part of a larger discussion of Mrs. Yishevot It's a very thoughtful discussion. I think it has 60 paragraphs. And it's a whole consideration, a whole matter. He too says like Dar Samech that if the Umas Olam say it's okay, then it's okay. The Satmarov has a very good retort, I have to say. And that is, the Umas Olam means the Arabs. No, it was not okay. The United Nations doesn't count. If the people in the Middle East said it's okay, it's a different story. Which they didn't. You see? The Arabs fight a tooth and nail. So the UN doesn't count. League of Nations doesn't count. <coughs> Lumus only means the ones who are affected. Which is an interesting time. <coughs> now, the discussions and debates on this are endless. I looked online. There are two separate internet universes. Satmer, uh, say Ralph Cook, you know. Two different sides on this. I just want to concentrate on one Nakuda. A point raised by Avni Nazar which tickled my interest. A very fundamental point, in my opinion. This Shlomo Melch business <coughs> is a Pasuk, or set up Sukim, in Shir Hashem. Shir Hashem is written by Shlomo. So Shlomo is saying, Why? How? When? When did this take place? In what context did Shlomo administer Hishbati Hashem this series of oaths. This is a question that attracted my interest, as it did, among other things, the, the um, Avni Nezer, who says, Avni Nezer, Im hishpati kodesh, If you're telling me that it's in the Torah, Ruch HaKodesh, and Shlomo said, Hishpati B'nus Yishalayim, Ho'yimena Roshi, yes, and Shlomo call Yisrael, becomes a Shua. How can Shlomo say, I'm Mashbia Kla Yisrael, Without them getting together and saying we're having a session in which we're doing a tekes hashba like they say nowadays, lehavdo. But that's what you had at Har Sinai, right? So Shlomo should have said, "Hishbatiyus when Shlomo get everybody together, maybe we're in the build a base, I mean, so whatever." And you know, im ta'irubis, im ta'urus avashet techbots. When does that happen? But lo matzina kazos. You look in Tanakh, you know, never see such occasions. Now I'm sure the Satmar said like this. It was on another time. It wasn't there. But here, you still hear. The word of the Avni Nazar. Gam lo yi tochen klal she yibasrim b'seros ha'gol z'yashbiyah. It's lo yi tochen that he would tell him, guess what, in future times, long after Shlomo, there's going to be a golos and you don't get out of it. 
And what's probably the third Shavuot day was Mashbiyadagayim. When did God get together all the nations of the world or the representatives in some gathering and make them all take an oath not to be Mishabi Klaus or Yosemadai? Hey, Elohim, the Gaim never heard of this. These are problems that pop up when you take Agadita literally. Now, in the history of Kali Yisrael, this Agadita, the history of rabbinic literature, being in the Gemara, was often commented upon, particularly by your Ein Yaakov type Mepharshim or your Farshim and Medrash. But it never really had a, a um, contemporary political relevance until the 20th century and the rise of modern Zionism. In other words, it was the subject of Agadic speculation. Nevertheless, these Mepharshim end up being the coin of the realm in the 20th century debates and discussions. So if you find something from the Nodibiyoto, Yonasanabshitz, Shuas Yaka, wherever, commenting on this, this will become something you'll end up finding in the Satmer, in the Eimah Banitzmecha, in the Rav Kook, and all these places. They're using these these uh, early century commentaries on the Agatha, even though I don't know if those those things meant hard and fast. Thus, very often, one finds quoted of Yonasanabshitz in the Avis Yonasan in Eschanon, that the Shalosh will supply even if the guy give a green light. Like happened in 1947. So see Satmar, so you see, the Avis agrees with us. Same thing with the Efei Torah. He also learns that word in the context of dialectical discussions, I want to point out. That even if the guy say it's okay, he still can't go. Okay? Uh, the same discourse is found in the name of Onesmecha, just he flips it. He'll find... Uh, uh, a mimer, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a drashas no uh thing from the Talmud Rashba, you know, something from the Shinabar Rebbe, which favors his position. Meaning, commenting on this Agatha, even though it's not like it's in the Gemara or anything like that. In that spirit, let's look at the question of Dabni Nazar, which I thought was an interesting one. What is the precise context? Of these Pesukim and Shirashirim. Not the literary context necessarily. That would be very interesting. To look how the Pesukim fits in with the rest of the Pesukim around it. In that particular paragraph, it appears three times. But rather the historical context, because that's who I am. As far as I can tell, there are two alternative scenarios in Chazal regarding Shirashirim. Either he wrote it in his old age or he wrote it when he was young. In the Seder Olam, which is very authoritative, Seder Olam, it says he wrote Shirashirim in his old age. So according to this, Shlomo wrote it when he was a Zokin. This, I'm sure, would follow the famous story that he was deposed it would be a Melech Hedin Melech. He started as a king who was knocked out by Ashmadai or whatever, or revolution, and then he was restored to the throne at the end. So in other words, if you follow Melech Hedin Melech, here's a brief, you know, summary of how it goes. Shlomo messed up with the Geisha wives. Hashem rebuked him, but he didn't listen. It says those words. Shlomo was then deposed, lost the throne, wanders and suffers, and he learned his lesson. 
restored to his throne, and even to Ruch HaKodesh, the bat, but battered and chastened by his period of deposition. That's why he dies a premature old age, only 52. Shlomo composes, among other things, Shir Hashirim, which on the one hand celebrates Devekis, yet at the same time sees the full significance, <clears throat> discerns the full significance of his having turned Klal Yisrael, uh, his having uh, messed up by introducing in the Klal Yisrael those Noshim Asherhitu Eslavavo, Shlomo sees ruefully that the churches in Rezora that his wives have erected on Harazesim, which lasted hundreds of years until Yoshiok, we're told. Uh, he sees what the Korban they make, that the same Shlomo who built the base of Migdash was responsible for laying the groundwork for its eventual Korban, which Hashem warned him about at the time of this of its construction. If you look in Malachim, here, let me get it here. You know, in chapter 9. Where it talks about Shlomo building the base of Migdash. See, you got to know a little bit of the Tanakh. When you look in the base of Migdash, and after it goes into detail how he built everything, and he had this big tefillah, and so on and so forth, right? So Shlomo, Vayem Hashem Eilov, Shalmatis Tfilos Etunos Hashem Eschanantel Fonai, I've listened to your whole prayers and everything, building a base of Migdash. Hidashti is a bias as if, and I'll be Makadish this house. I knows I agree. Any believe Shum call Yomim, and I will treat it as a base of Migdash, Hashem says, be is for you, Shlomo. Im Telikhlafonai calls Dabidavikhsamlibasha and so forth. If you stay from, like your father, Hakimosis Kimakal Visrawala, Kashud Dibartal Dabidavikha. Then I'll I'll keep take I'll take care of the way to I take care of David. Okay. However, I'm warning you, Shlomo. But if you go off the derech, and you go for idols or whatever, I'll wipe out the Jews, kick him out of Israel, and I'll destroy the base of Migdash. Yisrael Moshe Shem Kol Amin, Vabayis Azel Yeelion Kol Avishem Mushark, and this great house, people will be shocked and they'll spit and stuff like that, and they'll say it's because they abandoned Hashem. So he did warn them that you're building a base of that's very nice, but it only works if you keep the mitzvahs. You see, and so uh, the same Shlomo built a temple was also responsible for laying the groundwork for his eventual destruction which God warned them about in the time of the construction. I just read you the field that Hashem told them at the time was built. Ascribing the shortcomings of himself and his generation to the fact, because Shlom had the wisdom, that the Golis Mitzrayim had not been permitted to run its full course because the Jews had sunk to the 49th level of Tumah. So they should have been there for 400 years without any cheshbans. And the 400 years would totally purge them of their faults. But as can happen when somebody's having a very severe medical treatment, the treatment itself could kill you, you know? And so Hashem's like, if they can't handle it more, by, they'll be by 50 shari tumah, it'll be impossible. I got to take them out early. But it, they left Mitzrayim not completely purged of their character faults. 
So Shlomo tells the Jewish people, we are going to have to go through all this another time. This time, notice when the Gullus happens again, in the future, you have to see things through, you have to endure until the divinely ordained terminus aquam. Otherwise, it's like stopping the chemo prematurely. Consequently, I say to you, so it's not like Shlomo convened a public gathering in his old age and administered an oath. Rather, speaking with inspired foresight, Shlomo admonished the Jews in his old age that if they tamper with their divinely mandated destiny, they will face disaster, animat, in other words, he was sharing with them a certain type of prophecy. He was sharing with them God's will, which was that the full purging effects of Golas had to run their course, though this would take place sometime in the distant future. If you tell me that Shlomo wrote in Shir Shirim, and he's the one who says Ishbati, and you tell me like the Chazal say he wrote in his old age, I think you have to come up with some word like that. It's interesting to speculate on Shlomo's state of mind when he wrote this in his old age. He had to see at that point that Rechavim was coming after him, would mess everything up, and the kingdom would break apart. Indeed, Hashem told him that the kingdom would break apart. Hence his pessimism in Kohelis, which was also written at the same time. So the bottom line is there was no Asifas or Umar or anything like that. But rather it was done Shlomo like sort of admonishing prophetically the Kal Yisrael. Why Gullus? Why is it that the thing you have to endure? What's so great about Gullus? Well, either you can say it breaks the Jews' insufferable arrogance and materialism, provided it runs its full course, which it didn't do in, the, in Egypt, which is why they made the golden calf when they were in trouble. Alternatively, there's some metaphysical necessity for Golis in the Bria. That, I'm sure you're aware of, is the famous Shita and the Proch of the Maralami Prague and his Netzach Yisrael. But I'm not into that. Now, there's another scenario, which is fascinating, which says that Shlomo wrote Sherashir in his youth. Here you go from the Medrash Zuto, where it says, Shloshah Sforam Kosav, Shir Hashirim Mishle Koelis. Shir Hashirim Kosov Bekatanuso. Mishle Bialdusov Koelis Mishahizkin. He wrote Shir Hashirim when he was young. Mishle when is he yelled. And Koelis when he was old. But in what context? Here we have two alternative versions, which are fascinating. According to one, he wrote the three books when he reached three achievements. Shir Hashirim when he got rich. Mishlein when he got wisdom, Kohelis when he got power. Okay, I'll read it to you in Hebrew. Shlosh Hashirim Omar Kenegas Shlosh Sholish Milas Shaolah. Barisham Vayitin Shlom Amelchis Hakesu Shlom Kavonin. So in other words, the Milo was the Kesef. Hamila Shnia Vatera Chachma Shlom Betachin Miyalam. He got the wisdom from God, right? Hamila Shlish is wrote a Bechol Every Night Mitzvah Zadav. It was a powerful king who ruled, you know, as we would say, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Okay. Uh, according to another version in that medrash, 
He wrote the three books when he suffered three crashes, three misfortunes. What are the three misfortunes? <laughs> Number one, when he lost his foreign possessions. Because if you look at the Sefer uh, uh, Malachim especially, you'll see that the provinces which David had conquered broke away. Uh, there's a whole story about Edom and Aram, Brazil, and and other groups. So the great empire of King David and Yoav, which they conquered through war, fell apart during the time of Shlomo, although he still retained Israel, and he made very good money, not through conquest, but through commerce. Read the Book of Malachim. So the three crashes are as follows. When he lost his foreign possessions, when he lost the 12 tribes that was left only with Jerusalem, and when he lost Jerusalem, and only at his bed and was deposed from his throne. Here it is in Hebrew. So the first one, when he used to have a big empire, and now he, he didn't, he lost it, and now we only have, only have the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is the story of Shlomo's being deposed from the throne. Whether it's the Ashmedai or some other reason, maybe we were angry at him. It's not in the book of Malachim at all, or Yamam, but it is very well known in the Agadah, in Gittin and elsewhere. And so Shlomo was deposed for a while. Hayerida Shlishis, Shemardin Yisrael, And the third level was when he lost Ibn Yushalayim, and as they say, only had his own bed, and it was terrified. So, um, that's just very interesting. Okay? According to this, uh, let's put it this way. He wrote Shir Hashim when he lost the provinces. He wrote Mishlei, when he lost everything but Jerusalem, and he wrote Koalis when he even lost that. Now, according to this, it's very interesting. He wrote Shirashim when he was young, but had lost his foreign possessions. So in other words, when you read there, the rebellion of Edom and Aram happened very early in his reign, according to this. So although he was building the base of Migdash in his early years, there were clouds on the horizon, as he was losing his imperial possessions. My guess is as follows. It's all I ever have. A very intelligent Shlomo asked himself, what am I doing wrong? Why am I losing these provinces and territories conquered by my father? The answer, of course, his big sin. Shlomo's big sin when he was young, Bas Paro. The Book of Malachim singles out this marriage as a particularly egregious Sin and blunder. Listen how the Pusik says, Shlomo Ohav Rabos Bas Paro. Hear that? He had all these shikses and Bas Paro. Notice that's equal to all these things. They're all bad. Chazal say famously that the Roman Empire was founded on the day he married Bas Paro. I'm sure you've heard this. I'm Rabino Shmuel Bishosha Nosa Shlomo's Bas Paro, Yard Gavriel. That's their way of saying that this led to a whole chain of events which took the Jews down. Um, in other words, the future exile and destruction was from Shlomo's marrying, had its origin in the Shlomo marrying Bas Paro. 
Chazal blessed Shlomo and his behavior at his wedding to Bas Paro. Am Rabbi Shmuel, but also Laila Shehishlam Shlomo Melechus Beis Hamikdash, not so Bas Paro. That he married. Notice he had the chasana in Yerushalayim on the same night that was the held the party to celebrate the completion of Beis Hamikdash, which he did not go to. Went to his own wedding with Bas Paro. Consider two bands and celebrations. One was the Kla Yisrael for the base of Migdash, and the other one was Shlomo for his marriage. But also Tzalas Simchas Bas Paro, And Shlomo's band and music was louder and drowned out the base of Migdash stuff, which is disgusting. Who Okay? And both when they had this chasana, she brought him a band with a thousand different instruments. And she had each one play for him at the wedding. She would explain, being an Egyptian, this particular instrument is is played in praise of this idol and this one praising that idol and so forth. So in other words, it was a big sin. I might add that what actually took him down was the rebellion, as we all know, of Yeroboam, which came to fruition in his son's time. And Yeroboam was already in trouble with Shlomo because he told him off he gave him Musser. And the Chazal say he gave him Musser that why, why do you marry Baspar and why are you giving her special karka and blocking the base of Megish and things like that. So this Bas Paro business really cost him big time. Okay? So a wiser, if this is true, then already at a young age, some had sort of messed up in this particular regard, a wiser, though still young Shlomo, may have seen, as he surveyed everything, because he was so smart, Hashem gave him a You can take the Jews out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the Jews. If this is when he said, He was saying, the missing time of Golos Mitzrayim had to be made good. Problem is, it doesn't make sense. Shlomo and the Jews were in what I call their Kodak moment. Everything was perfect. Shlomo was a from king. The Jewish people were in Eretz Yisrael. They had prosperity, Ishtachas Gafna of Ishtachas Te'ino. They had military security. Economy, economy was good. Rabbi Beis Amigdash. He had Ruch HaKosh. I mean, what do you want? When you and I, Davin and Shemonesri, oh, Hashim Shavtenik Barashona and all that business, you're really saying, whether you realize it or not, let's go back to Shlomo's times. And here, Shlomo's saying it's not good. Why would a young King Solomon adjure them to suffer in the future? Agolus. After all, do we not pray for a return to a Shlomo moment? Bishlomo in his old age. Okay. Especially if he was deposed. But young age, before anything happened, doesn't sound right. And anyway, being Kohelis, and three times in Shir Shem, when he's young and had everything, you have to say, I think, as follows. Shlomo looks at a Kodak moment when everything was just right, 
And because he was so wise, God gave him wisdom, he discerns its deficiencies. The Rambam very famously said, I know you know this, that the purpose of the Messianic era was not the Kodak moment, but rather spirituality. The Kodak moment was meant was to be the means to the real end of advanced spirituality. What are the last lines of the whole Yad HaZokhov? Lo nisavu navim chachami moza mashiach lo kadeshi yishu tuel kol olon that our forefathers didn't want Mashiach time to rule the world. V'lo kadeshi yerda begoyim v'lo kadeshi yinasu osam hamim v'lo kadeshi lechol v'lishtas lesmoch el kadeshi penuyim batayra v'chachmasa v'lo yam nogus emavatel kadeshi yisko chayi alam hava v'otozman lo yesham lo rov there be plenty of prosperity, no wars. And you get whatever you want. So that's a spiritual moment. Uh, that's not what the Jews were doing in the time of Shlomo, even though they had the, the prosperity. You get it? They had the prosperity. I saw a name on a smechel. Because I was looking in the Satmer and the other one. And, and he quotes the Orachayim, a Kaddosh in, in Parsha Bahar. Where the Orachayim says, if the Jews don't use the Kodak moment for spirituality, then th- that moment will not be the Gula Shlema. The Jews will have to achieve the Gula in another way, through suffering. This is in Bahar, where it says, Ki You know, you look up the Orachayim there, and he says, there are two possible scenarios for coming a Mashiach, A and B. Bechinos Echos, one, Roman was regardless. Because the Mashiach come with Jews are millionaires and they're doing very well. But the other scenario, we took Anius Vedachus out of poverty and suffering. And he goes on to say, If we would have been Zohar, to use the peace and prosperity for the right way, the, Ram, the way the Rambam says he was to do it, then that would have been the Gula Shlema. Because Shlema had everything going for him. But if that doesn't work out, then we have to do it the other way through Gullus. As he puts it, Tocha Vatsaras Vadakas Vanias. Okay? So here is Shlomo Melch at his peak, Batakfo. The Kodak moment. The golden age of prosperity. And power, who wrote him, Etipsach Vadazo. But the king has been cursed with great wisdom. And what does Shlomo say about the great wisdom he was granted? Yosef Das, Yosef Machos. The more you know, the more painful it is. I know too much. The king discerns the hollow nature of the power and prosperity of his time. The hollowness is reflected in the loss of his imperial possessions, even though it doesn't make a dent in his economic prosperity, which he attains through commerce. The loss of the imperial provinces reflects, obviously, divine displeasure, which the king realizes, though the king lacks the will to curb his own appetites. Shlomo. It is a remarkable situation when you have a king who fluctuates between Ruach HaKodesh and Tibus. 
Now you think I'm just saying that, you know, whatever. But you know that's enough. If you look at Perkyodalov, after it says Shlomo married all these shikses, in Perkyodalov, it says, listen to this. I'm just reading what it says in Malacha. Oz Yivne Shlomo Boma Lechmosh Chikutzmo Bahara Shalpanish, right? Shlomo built a big of a Zara church on the Harazasim across the street from the base of Mikdash. And he built another church there for Molech. And he did to other uh, of his wives who wanted churches. They had places where they could offer carbonus to their gods. And Hashem got angry, very angry at Shlomo. His heart was turning away. He was, following, he was letting them do this. His heart was turning away from Hashem. And Hashem commanded him not to do this. He commanded him not to do this. Shlomo didn't listen. Right? Now you could possibly learn he's referring to the earlier warning from the, as I mentioned before. Seems to me that right then and there when it happens. In his moment of Ruach HaKodesh, the king acknowledges his reign will not be the hope-for culmination of human history. It will not be the Gula Shlema. Since the Gula Shlema would not take place now, mitoch Ashiris v'gadlus, it would have to take place otherwise, mitoch tokev atzoros v'dachkos vanius. And for that to work, the full dregs of the cup of suffering will have to be drunk. Therefore, hishpati eschem benos yushalayim imto iru imto urus avas achetechbots which is a remarkable scenario indeed. Shir Hashirim, we're told, was written in a state of ecstasy. It says the others are Kodesh and this is Kodesh Kodoshim. Shlomo yearns for Gula Shleman in his ecstasy. And he's prepared to do what it takes, even if it's a long Gullus, which he himself will not live to see. Anyway, that's the best I can make out of it. This is my reply to the question of the Avni Nezer as best as I can see. The Avni Nezer himself could only conclude that these three Shavuos did not actually happen in history, but they happened in meta-history, in spiritual. Hishpati Yisrael is now Shlomo Hashem talking to the Sherish Neshama of Kal Yisrael and the Sherish Neshamas of these different Umas Olam. So in other words, telling him not to jump the gun. So it didn't actually happen in a historical way, but it did happen. Okay. Whether the Shavuot is applying nowadays is a separate inst- debate depending on many, variable, many variables. Uh, as we said, the UN said they could have Israel. Another is whether they're interdependent. In other words, if the guy violate their part, their Meshavah Yosemite, then the Jews don't have to keep their part about Yimrit B'Umas Olam. Although the Satmar Rebbe says that the three are not interdependent. Even if the guy break theirs, we got to keep ours. Okay? Uh, I just want to conclude... By saying something about my mom, based on the Galicia lectures I just delivered in Baltimore. Uh, my mother was born in 1912. Think about that. Long time ago. I don't know much about her early youth in Bardiov. Just some stories she told. No one's ever heard of Bardiov until I mentioned it on the podcast, and then some people told me they didn't, they're from there. She was born in 1912 to Hasidish parents. They were sons of Hasidim. I'm expecting to know this, but 
Bardia is in Slovakia, which was the kingdom of Hungary at that time, very close to the Galician border. So really, it's like a satellite of Galicia, not far from Sanz. It's, I would use the term Newark and New York, something like that. You know, they're close to each other. So no, she she lived in Hungary, but brought up like in a Galician way. Uh, but her father died when she was five years old in 1917, my grandfather. I'm from a second marriage after the war. My mother did not have a Jewish education. There was none. Father was dead. She only learned what she learned at home. She did go to public school in Czechoslovakia, eventually qualifying as an executive secretary. To the degree they ever gave it any thought, I figured it was a result of her being an orphan. But thanks to my recent talks on Galicia, I discovered this was the preferred Hasidic me- method of female education in that part of the world. Limude Kedish, no. Limude Chol, yes. Just the other week, I came across a paragraph about Bardiov in Professor Rachel Manikin's book when I was looking up for the Galicia. And uh, Rachel Manikin, who I know, she wrote a book um, about the rebellion of the daughters and female education on Beis Yaakov and this, that, and the other. Uh, you know, in the early 20th century, she had a lot of homework. And she quoted in a paragraph, I couldn't believe it, uh, a paragraph of Bardiov, where it says, that in this little town where my mother's from, a small place, they started the Beis Yaakov afternoon school after public school in 1934, when she was 22 years old, when it applied to her, but the school was very controversial in 1934, because the local Sanser Hasidim fought a tooth and nail. You see, when the Beis Yaakov movement was started by Sarah Schneer, some Hasidic groups like the Gare backed it, but others like the Belzers, I'm talking about in the 20s and 30s, and the Sanzers, a very kind, you know, Charkov, this, that, and the other, opposed the tooth and nail, okay? And what they said was, public school is okay, Beis Yaakov is trafe. Isn't that weird? But that was a different time and place. They have an old article where a guy, one of the Harvard stops, is saying, oh, my mother was Gavaldic. She went to, had excellent secular education. She had no Jewish education. He's boasting about that. Because, you know, Daniel, you know, Muhammad is been a Tiflis. But she became a from Hasidic lady. Uh, that's just interesting. Now, therefore, whatever my mother knew, she picked up at home. During the war, she had occasions where she risked her life for Yiddishkeit. I've told that story elsewhere. So, I would say, it was in spite of her lack of Jewish education. But a Sanzer Chassid would say, no, no, no. It's because the system we had in place was right. She learned it from her mother, and that's what you know, stuck in her kishkas. I think that's nuts, but maybe they're right. And, of course, since her father was dead... She never had a full Hasidic upbringing. She never really became Hasidish. You know? So from my father's point of view, that was okay. Because he was a Litvak. Anyway, um, there's just a few points I wanted to make on the uh, on Subas. And uh, I won't keep you any longer. Uh, as I said before, the yard set is tomorrow night. Uh, and uh, that's it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.